I always say it looks like somebody was high or drunk when they drew it because it makes no sense whatsoever. And it's funny because the world knew that Palestine was Palestine. And then one day after the state of Israel was created in 1948, that was it. The world forgot. And all the people talk about and all the people seem to know is that there was a Bible and then there was an Israel. And in between, there was 2,000 years of nothing but sand. Welcome to the Miko Peled podcast. This is the Miko Pellet podcast. I am not Miko Pellet. My name is Ellie Gerzon. I'm a longtime Palestine solidarity activist, and I've been working with Miko on social media and other projects. And we're just trying to make this podcast more frequent. You write these articles like a machine. They're just coming out all the time. So we're just going to try to get the podcast episodes to match that more. Does that sound good? Yep, that's a great plan. Thank you. Great. Yeah, day. yeah. I'm excited about it. And uh, today we're going to talk about the 75th anniversary of UN Resolution 181. And yes, people can check out your article in Mint Press News about it. And we're going to use that article as a jumping off point. But can you tell people what is UN Resolution 181? Sure. This is the resolution that is known as the UN Partition Plan for Palestine. And it was a huge accomplishment, a huge diplomatic win for the Zionist movement because it got the United Nations, the international community, to give a stamp of approval to uh, for the creation of a Jewish state in Palestine, albeit on, on part of Palestine. So the Zionists saw this as a huge accomplishment. And of course, the Arabs around the world and the Palestinians thought it was complete madness. And how much do you know about how likely it was that resolution was going to pass? Now it seems so much of the international community is complicit in what Israel does, but was this a foregone conclusion or was this something they were really lucky to be able to pass UN Resolution 181? What was it like at that time? As much as It certainly was not a foregone conclusion, but it wasn't luck either. The Zionists had a permanent delegation in New York and in Washington and in London, and they were working extremely hard behind the scenes with the various countries, and particularly with the UK and the US, but with the various countries to get this resolution to pass. Actually, my grandfather was part of the delegation to the United Nations, and when it did pass, it was an enormous accomplishment, and there was a huge, there were huge celebrations by the Jewish community in Palestine at the time. They were dancing in the streets. It was seen as the equivalent of the Messiah coming because it was, for the first time, a real stamp of approval for the creation, the actual physical creation of a state for Jewish people, a homeland for Jewish people in Palestine. Yeah. And can you get into some of the details of what the what the resolution looked like, what that meant on the ground as far as land and governance? Yes. If we look at the actual map of the partition plan, and it's easy to find if you just put partition plan or resolution 181, it pops up. When you look at it, it looks like, it. I always say it looks like somebody was high or drunk when they drew it because it makes no sense whatsoever. It's a strange division of the country along lines that really don't make sense visually. And what it did was it gave the majority Palestinian population, who are close to a million and a half at the time, a smaller portion of the country. 
and gave the Jewish minority population, which were only about half a million or 400,000 at the time, the larger portion of the country. And there was a large Palestinian minority within what was going to be the Jewish state. And there was a Jewish minority in what was going to become the Palestinian state. And then, of course, there was Jerusalem, which was supposed to be independent, an independent entity on its own. So it made absolutely it made absolutely no sense. There was no way it could have possibly worked, particularly considering the fact that Palestinians were never consulted on how this is going to work and did not agree to it. Yeah, that's an important detail when the majority of the people of the land are not involved in this decision making. Yeah, so you just now you mentioned your grandfather's role. And then so after this resolution passes, your father, a young general, also played an important role. Let's see the quote. Do you want to read the quote that you have in the article if you have it in front of you? Or I can read uh, it. Before. No, that, that comes later on. That quote comes later on. So do you want to talk about what happened throughout yeah. the 40s? So the story is the United Nations finally agreed to establish a state for Jewish people, and then the Arabs attacked. And the poor Jewish community was smart and fast on their feet and lucky and so on. And therefore, they were able to defeat the, the evil Arabs from destroying this fledgling state. What, in fact, took place immediately as the resolution was passed, which was the 29th of November. So, you know, immediately in December of 1949, sorry, 1947, the Zionist militia began this massive campaign of ethnic cleansing, pushing Palestinians out by force, of course, conducting massacres, many of which are to this day being discovered and the number of casualties still being counted to this day. And this is the campaign that went on for over a year at the end of which the state of Israel was, or during which the state of Israel was established, but at the end of which close to a million Palestinians were forcibly kicked out of their country, countless were killed, and the Zionists had in their hand close to 80% of the country. So the resolution gave the Zionists a little bit, just short of 60% of the country by the beginning of 1949. So by the end of this massive campaign of ethnic cleansing, the state of Israel was already in, in place, and it had in its possession almost 80% of the country, which is the map of Israel that we see the pre-1967 map. So it's the entire country without the West Bank and without the Gaza Strip. And I'll just add that those two spaces were by the Israelis, by the Zionists, as areas that would remain outside of the control of the Jewish state. Of course. There's the land from the UN, and then there's the land from further violence, further colonization by the Zionists. And one part that really stood out to me in reading your article is after so much ethnic cleansing and things were, as you put it, once the first wave of ethnic cleansing of Palestine came to a pause in the early 50s, the newly established state began planning its next war against Egypt, fearing peace as one might fear the plague. Do you want to say a little bit about that, about why you would say that Israelis fear peace like the plague? Because their behavior demonstrates that. What had happened during the 1950s, so the campaign of ethnic cleansing and the establishing of the of a Jewish majority in those boundaries went on through the early 1950s. And two things were taking place. Um, the, the, the Israeli prime minister, who was David Ben-Gurion, was a hawk. 
He wanted to ensure that Israel would always be feared, that, that Israel was always going to be the biggest bully in the neighborhood, in the region. And so the first thing that happened was that Palestinian refugees from the Gaza Strip, now again, the Gaza Strip was established really as a prison, as a space to push in refugees, hundreds of thousands of refugees from the southern part of Palestine. And so they began to try to come back in, either to go back to their homes or to go find work or to bring food or to fight. And that was called infiltration and they were called infiltrators. And so Ben-Gurion would send these commando units and there's a particularly nasty one that was commanded by Ariel Sharon at the time. And they would go in and they would exact terrible punishment on the people of uh, the Gaza Strip, on these poor refugees. And then Ben-Gurion wanted to engage in a war against Egypt. And so for all sorts of reasons, but it was clear that he was pushing very hard together with the top brass of the newly created Israeli military. And there was some opposition within the Israeli government. So it took him a couple of years before he was able to actually put this together. It wasn't until 1956 that Israel began this campaign, it was known as the Suez campaign, where they attacked they attacked Egypt. But they were getting ready for war immediately. They wanted immediately to start another war. And any forces, any political voices within Israel that said, no, we need peace, you know, we have our state, let's calm down, let's make peace, were completely shut or completely shut down. But you're saying there were voices like that. There were people saying, we've done enough ethnic cleansing, let's have peace now. Yeah, let's have peace with our neighbors. And Ben-Gurion didn't want to hear of it. He didn't think peace was a valuable thing. And so he kicked out anybody in his government who voiced that. And there was some, there was a minority that were angry at that. But basically, Ben-Gurion won the day. And the rest is history. We know that the 1956 war took place against Egypt, which was really uncalled for. It was, a, somebody, people may know, this was a coalition of the British, the French, and Israel that attacked, that attacked Egypt. It was following the nationalization of the Suez Canal by the Egyptian president, Gamal Abdel Nasser. And, and that was that. And that, that's what took place. But the point I was trying to make is, again, that it wasn't long after the state was established that the first prime minister of Israel was already, and the top brass of the army, were already planning to start another war. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And yes, what we see Ben Gurion, the airport of Tel Aviv, of Israel, the primary airport, is named after Ben-Gurion. So we know that uh, he won out in that mm. in terms of history. So yes, exactly. So this unwarranted attack against Egypt. I'm always curious, though, what, what was their justification for attacking Egypt? There were various reasons. One was the Gaza Strip was controlled by the Egyptians. And the assumption was that, or the claim was, we have to attack because the Egyptians are arming and training the people in Gaza, and we have to go in there and punish them for that. The British and the French wanted to participate because they were not happy that the Egyptians nationalized the Suez Canal, which of course ran through their own country, so there's no no reason for them not to do and not to allow the colonizers to continue to, to colonize it. And so basically the Suez Canal was controlled by the British, and the Egyptians were saying everybody owns it now. Yeah, it says, no, they wanted to own it themselves. The Suez Canal runs through Egypt. And so mm -hmm. the Egyptians wanted to run it instead of having foreign companies run it. So everybody had their own reasons. And Ben-Gurion just really wanted to always make sure that we punish our neighbors as much as possible so that nobody messes with us, uh, nobody messes with Israel. And there was a famous instance where, where Palestinian fighters came in 
and ambushed an Israeli from a kibbutz near Gaza. And that was a big deal. That became a huge PR campaign for the government. And the famous Moshe Dayan, the famous general with the eye patch, uh, gave a eulogy in which he said, these people over there are, well, they look at us and they're envious of us and they want to kill us. And he admits that we took their land and we took their country and therefore they kill us. And therefore we have no choice but to maintain vigilance and always be ready to fight. And that was the kind of the prelude to the war. That was like the declaration of here's why we need to do this. And then immediately after that, or very shortly after that, the war began. And, and actually, I talk about this in my book, in the General Sun, because it was a very famous eulogy piece. Some people compare it to the Gettysburg Address. It was short, it was powerful. Moshe Dayan was very charismatic. It, it really touched the nerve of Israelis. And the point was to get Israelis to support this idea to start the war against Egypt, even though in the end, it was a secret attack and nobody knew about it until it happened. So that was that. these were the things that were leading up. They were leading up to that war. And then your previous question about the quote, or my, my dad's quote. Oh, I sorry. I, I got to just take a moment to reflect on uh, the Gettysburg Address be, uh, compared with this. It's just, uh, it's quite a contrast. And I think that Israel does this a lot where they like, they legitimately think of themselves as progressive in a lot of ways or something. And the idea of comparing this speech that helped make make the case for an un, unprovoked war versus freeing enslaved human beings just yeah it's, it's quite a it's quite a lot of chutzpah yeah well, you, ex exactly in this it's very interesting this this particular this particular eulogy there are several instances where palestinian fighters came in and killed israelis from gaza this particular one was a kibbutz and the kibbutzim of course were ashkenazis they were the cream of the crop and the hippies this they weren't well they weren't quite hippies at the time they were kind of <laughs> Uh, the pioneers, the Zionist pioneers, they were sunburned and they cultivated the land and they were this this perfect Jew that the Zionists wanted to create. And so the officer, the kind of the security officer who was killed, who was the security officer for the kibbutz, he was an example of that. His name was Roy Rottenberg and he, uh, Rottenberg, and he was this perfect kind of specimen of the new Jew. And so even though others were killed, they were not quite as symbolic as him. And so Moshe Dayan came down and did the eulogy and talked about the burning hatred of the Arabs against us and that we must not, we can't blame them, but we have to we blame ourselves for not being vigilant enough and we must seek a revenge for Roy's blood and on and that sort of thing. And, and we must not listen to those ambassadors, malevolent ambassadors who are hypocrites and tell us to lay down our arms because this is what happens. Because there were attempts to try to prevent the war, both by forces within Israel and by international forces who could sense that uh, Israel was uh, was edging to, to go out and fight again. So that's what the, this was basically a PR campaign using the blood of this young man to, uh, you know, to make excuses for the war. Yeah. And uh, now I think we can both agree we can go to your father's quote. Yeah. Do you want to set that up? Or So he was, this is, this is the mid 1950s. He was a young, uh, promising officer. He spoke English well. And there was a gathering of Jewish American leaders in Jerusalem who had a conference and Ben Gurion was there and other important Israeli dignitaries were there. And this is actually mentioned in Moshe Sharet's memoirs. Moshe Sharet was Israel's second prime minister, and then he was minister of foreign affairs. And he mentions that this young officer, Mati Pellet, came and spoke. 
And he says very clearly that the army is waiting for the government to give the order to push Israel's eastern boundary to where it naturally belongs along the Jordan River, which means taking the West Bank. And so the the idea that the West Bank belongs to Israel and the idea that all of Palestine should be part of the state of Israel and the idea that Israel's natural boundary needs to be on the eastern side of the Jordan River is not something that just happened in, in the Six-Day War in 1967. This was something that was ingrained in, in the Zionist leadership, both in the military and, and among people from the very beginning. Wow. Yeah, we could get a lot into talking about your father and his transformation from saying something like that to being somebody who was critical. Uh, I think you talked about that with Katie Halper in a recent interview. But maybe we'll go through through this history for now and focus on that in another podcast. So you just talk, you lay out more about how Israel continued to destroy Palestinian historical monuments and cemeteries, just the absolute definition of cultural genocide to establish a direct link between modern Israel and ancient tribe of the Hebrews. And I really think there are a lot of people who just think of Palestine that way. They're like, there's Israel, and then there's Bible stories. And we're just going to skip everything else in between. Right. So the campaign of ethnic cleansing had several facets to it. It's not just kicking out the people. It's kicking out the people. Then it's destroying the villages. Then it's hiding what, what remained by, by creating these forests or by just building highways over them. And, and of course, giving the land to either cities, if this was municipal land, or to the kibbutzim, who are now this new agricultural communities that Israel established, and giving them the land so they could cultivate, the, so they could continue to cultivate this great land. And then there was also the history and the culture. Palestine was an Arab Muslim country for 1500 years. There were there were, there were monuments, there were cemeteries, there were, of course, mosques in all these cities. The city of Tabaria or Tiberia it was an Arab city. It was created by the, in the 18th, 19th century. There's a, there's a beautiful mosque that was built there. There it was, it was an Arab city, a beautiful Arab city on, on, on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. Nope, there's no, not a single Arab lives there anymore. You can still see that there are Arabs home there. And you can see this mosque that used to, at one point, was a glorious mosque, and it's just in disrepair. And this is true across the country, up and down, everywhere you go. You look at the city of Ramle, the city of Lid, which is, by the way, the city of Lid, the occupied city of Lid is where Ben Gurion Airport sits, which you mentioned, Tel Aviv Airport. You look at these cities, and if you pay attention, you can see the remnants of a very rich history. And all of that was either allowed to fall into disrepair or just destroyed. And, and apartment complexes and condominiums were built for, for Israeli Jews, usually at the expense of, of course, the expense of Palestinians. So there was a whole process and then rewriting the history. And it's funny because the world knew that Palestine was Palestine. And then one day after the state of Israel was created in 1948, that was it. The world forgot. And all the people talk about and all the people seem to know is that there was a Bible and then there was an Israel. And in between there was 2000 years of nothing but sand. Israel can began working on this immediately, and then it continues to work on this today around Jerusalem, every place possible to erase and destroy and erase and destroy, and then create these mythical stories, these mythical spaces. Like outside Jerusalem in Silwan, there's this archaeological, biblical park 
because somebody said that's where the city of David used to be. It's called the city of David, Biblical Park. There was no David. There's no historical proof that there was a David. <laughs> Palestinian town. It's been a Palestinian town going back hundreds of years. It's a, it, There's 50,000 Palestinians live there. It's right outside the old city walls. But who cares? They destroy the Palestinian homes. It's near the old city. And boom, you hear, here you have this one more of these archaeological attraction parks to create the sense that there was something there that never was. And to create the sense that we, the Jews, are the descendants of the ancient Hebrews and so on. And again, that's at the expense of Palestinians because the ethnic cleansing, to complete the ethnic cleansing, it's not enough to just kick out the people. Yeah. And I want to highlight a couple of things that you touched on. What you're talking about, about erasing the Palestinian history in all sorts of ways. An important word for people to be aware of is Judaization, where you, can you give like an example of that, where a certain name is changed from the name it's had for hundreds or thousands of years and made to sound more Jewish? Almost every kibbutz, (laughs) every Israeli town, they're all over the country. It was Akir and uh, Ashkelon was Askelan and it goes on and on. The entire country is like that. Yeah. Tel Aviv was yet on. It's endless, and it goes to this day. It's happening all the time in in, in the West Bank, and it go. It happens also in cities and towns in the West Bank, and it also happens in in Jerusalem all the time. They change street names. Haifa. All the street names are now Independence Street and Ben Gurion Street and Zionism Street, where it was before. Other names, Arab names. So this is the process that is taking place all over the place, all over the place. Yeah, and, and that's yeah, like you said, that's the process. Yeah. And another thing you mentioned that I just wanted to make sure to highlight, you talked about one of the ways that you get that that Israelis got rid of Palestinian villages was putting highways over them, but also putting forests over them. So I think a lot of people, a lot of Jewish people in the U.S. and others know about the JNF, the Jewish National Fund, which would collect donations to plant trees in Israel, which sounds very nice, except those trees were planted directly on top of Palestinian villages as a form of ethnic cleansing. It's it's really a, such a terrible thing, and to use trees to do such a terrible thing is especially awful. What they did is they had to substantiate the claim that they made the desert bloom. Right. Uh, now, they didn't make the desert bloom because even the Nakab, which is a desert, is a fertile desert. When you look at aerial photos that the British took in the 1920s, huge tracts of land that were cultivated. And they were exporting barley and all kinds of things to Britain and so forth, the Bedouin in the Nakab in the south. It's complete nonsense, of course. These trees did nothing but harm. And the forests are there. You could drive by many of these forests covering up either towns and cities that, that used to be or just destroying the landscape because these are trees that don't belong. They're not part of the natural habitat. Exactly, yeah. Non-native forests that sometimes take up more water than native trees would or more flammable than native trees. That's a really scary part of it. Okay, just to cap up for today, for this episode, you said we need to look at the history of Palestine in order to appreciate its potential future. So what you're saying, Miko, is that you agree with Benjamin Netanyahu when he spoke with televangelist Joel Osteen. Except for one small detail. Which What's is, that detail? He doesn't talk about a history. Uh, Netanyahu talks about the mythology, he talks about the biblical stories, which are not history. I'm talking about the actual history of Palestine. I'm talking about a 1,500-year history of a most predominantly Muslim Arab country that has developed in architecture, developed in science and commerce, has developed in in so many ways. 
and has been a part of world history because as an intersection, an important intersection, it contributes to so much. And then the history prior to that, thousands of years where the country was referred to as Palestine or Palestine by the pharaohs, by the Greeks, by the Romans, by the Assyrians, and so on. And so to appreciate what Palestine was, what the Palestine was, any places like Gaza, which were enormously important places of learning and commerce and so on, and then to build on that and to say, this period right now that we're experiencing in Palestine is a dark and hopefully will be a short period within the longer, larger history of Palestine, and hopefully we can bring it to an end so that there can be, once again, this free, pluralistic, open-minded, tolerant Palestine the way it used to be before it was taken by the Zionists. That sounds like a great note to, to end on. Like I said, there's lots of things that we touched on that I'm excited to talk about further. But yeah, really excited to be helping on your podcast. I appreciate it. Really do. Thank you, Ellie. This is great. Yeah, awesome. Okay, let's talk to you all later. Thanks for tuning in.